Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I'll, I'll usually uh, lead into some of these discussions. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your illness and sort of what's ahead. Is that okay with you? Um, and uh, they said, well, why? Well, I kind of want to get a sense of what's important to you so that when and if things do progress, you can get the care and treatment that you want. A physician helps patients and their families face the inevitability of life's end and what it means. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Joel Bauman has long specialized in health care for the elderly. It's a population often needing extra medical attention, from help with common aches and pains of growing older, to managing a full-blown crisis. And in recent years, with a network known as VNA Care in the Boston area, he's entered the domain of hospice care, where patients shift from seeking a cure, which may no longer be realistic, to relieving the symptoms and stress of serious illness. As a young physician in the 1980s, Dr. Bauman was stirred by an encounter with a patient he has never forgotten. He had a history of two different kinds of cancer, a type of leukemia and melanoma, which were advanced, but people thought that for the most part they were in a remission. Perhaps the leukemia had come back. And he had been admitted to hospital for a liver biopsy because his liver had gotten enlarged, and they were concerned the cancer had gone there. His name was Max. That's all I'll share. And within a couple of days, it became clear that he didn't just have a big liver, but this cancer was now elsewhere in his body. And while he had just come into the hospital for a biopsy, it was now looking like he might not leave. He was that sick. Um, Towards the end of the week, we got the pathology back on the biopsy, and it turned out that not only was this leukemia back, but so was the melanoma. Both of them were found on this liver biopsy. So it was now increasingly clear this gentleman was not going to do well. And I remember seeing him, he was getting sicker, stopped eating for the most part, starting to get a little bit confused. Um, And um, after rounds on a Saturday, I went home expecting that I wasn't going to see him on Monday when he came back, when I came back to work, um, thinking that he was that ill. Confronting the realities of life and death is part of the fabric of the medical profession, especially for those taking care of older patients at the end of life. 
and sometimes raw emotions go with the territory. On Monday, I came back to work, and there's just so much to this situation, whereas this was the dying man on the ward, and he had been moved to the furthest most room down at the end of the hall, rather than him being close to the nurse's station where he could get a lot of attention and care, he was now functionally and geographically kind of ostracized. And again, surprised that he was actually still alive, I walked down to the end of the hall to see him. And um, before I could even enter the room, his wife came out of the room, grabbed me by the tie, pulled on my tie and said, if he was a horse, you would have shot him by now, and then ran away. How did that make you feel? I was terrified because I had no idea what I was about to walk into. But we'll, I'll share, but there was so much to that, both her sense of the, of, of the loss of her partner of nearly 50 years, her reflection on what she must have been observing in terms of his suffering, and then I walked into the suffering that she had been dealing with for that entire weekend, which was an actively dying man who was severely short of breath and vomiting blood, surrounded by his two boys who were in their early 40s. And apparently one of his sons had, had been living in the Middle East and came in early that morning to see his father. Um, I promptly increased the morphine to the appropriate dose, and he died about an hour later. For Dr. Joel Bauman, then a junior medical resident training at the Boston City Hospital on rotation at a nearby Veterans Administration hospital, that experience planted a seed that would shape his medical career. The suffering that I witnessed, I witnessed a little piece of it where this family had been watching this and this patient had been experiencing this. And I realized that despite all our wonders of American medicine, there's some aspect or Real, some aspect to our care that's really lacking, specifically the attention to symptom control and, and, and suffering. And I'm going to use suffering in the broadest way. As a doctor, I'm prepared and trained to treat certain degrees of physical suffering, but there are a whole other range of domains. And that lady's grabbing of my tie, only years later, the dimension of what she had been dealing with became clear and again was what I found once I started doing hospice care, which was this attention to the whole person. You know, we are, as doctors, I'm good at dealing with illness. I can't save everybody, but I'm good at managing illness. But we are more than our bodies. We are our bodies. We are a psychology we're with a range of emotions. And um, we are a spirit. And... Um, that's the work that I get a chance to do as a hospice doc, um, not by myself specifically, because all those other domains, in order to meet the needs of the whole person, are met by a range of different professionals um, who can attend to psychologic, spiritual, and the physical need. I've known Joel Bauman for many years. I've observed his remarkable depth of compassion and dedication, how he can be quite profoundly touched by the struggles of his patients in hospice care, 
who have entered their final days. As people are anticipating leaving, leaving their sense of being on this earth, a whole range of uh, emotional states come up. Um, anger at being sick. Anger at some behavior that may have led them to be sick, the smoker with lung cancer, um, the alcoholic with end-stage liver disease, bad behavior in life, you know, been through four marriages and was less than the savory uh, uh, human at some points in your life, or uh, um, uh, remember interviewing this 91-year-old gentleman who had been a bombardier in World War II. And he was one of the guys who was dropping bombs on Dresden and his spiritual distress at the number of children that he had killed 70 years before. Hospice professionals, the physicians and nurses, social workers and chaplains, are familiar with the process known as life review. It's a natural phase when patients take stock of their lives, try to make sense of the kaleidoscope of their experiences, attempt to draw out some measure of peace with our all-too-human existence. We reflect on our lives, and do they have meaning? Did they have meaning? Will, what, what's my legacy? Those are all little domains of spiritual uncertainty and incompleteness. Guilt, anger, shame, incomplete business, and what's the, what, does my life have any meaning? Will it have any meaning? How am I going to be remembered? That's the spiritual crucible in a nutshell. And all of those little themes will come up in different patients. And is this something that's occupying the thoughts of people in most cases? I think so. I, I, I suspect if you spend the time to actually inquire, most folks will have those thoughts or some pa palette of, of, of those kinds of issues. So how does a caregiver help the person move through what could feel like an overwhelming minefield of difficult emotions? So, so once again, it depends in, in immensely on inquiry. Um, and here, especially with some of these emotions around you know, you know, guilt or anger, this is often a, a place of silent suffering. It's okay for someone to tell the doctor that their back hurts because they have tumor in it. That's a perfectly valid thing. It's not a very easy thing to say, um, I'm afraid to die. I'm, 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 I'm suffering with the knowledge that um, I, you know, I beat my first wife and never really addressed this very broken relationship from 40 years ago. It's not an easy thing to bring up. Only, particularly only, because they may not have a deep history with you. Precisely. Uh, but it's just, it's just a challenging kind of thing to bring up, period. So part of to, the way to get in, and I think this is where the chaplains are much, well, they're trained to do this especially, um, uh, is to validate the fact that these kinds of emotions can exist and are pretty darn normal. Um, so it's my experience that a lot of folks dealing with what you're, where, where you are in life, these are the kinds of things that commonly come up. I'm curious if you've had a similar experience and what my, if, and I'm more than willing to listen. Because we all live with some regrets. 
Precisely. And the art of doctoring and of healing at the highest level incorporates the art of listening, not just through a stethoscope applied to the chest, but also to a patient's symptoms of distress, of feeling deeply frustrated, and of apprehension about an uncertain future. There are little signposts of, um, I, I, I found, of people finding measures of peace or not. The, the railing against the where they are in their illness. I am still really upset, constantly complaining about the doctors at that first hospital who missed the diagnosis. Um, you know, you, you switched medications on me four times and I'm still no better. When folks are still stuck in the angry regret, I haven't even come to terms with my diagnosis yet place, that usually means ongoing spiritual distress. Versus just the opposite, which is, you know, we tried months and months of treatment. You know, we spent all this time in the in the clinic and in the doctor's office and getting all these tests and, you know, the thing still still came back. And I'm not happy with that, but look at all the time I can spend with my grandkids now. They're crawling all over the bed. Talking with physician Joel Bauman, a geriatrician trained in relieving the symptoms and distress of serious illness. He's with VNA Care near Boston. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, the final chapter, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. Dying, of course, is inescapable for us all, a fact of life as basic as our birth. But the end of life is a natural passage we often have trouble coming to grips with. It's not a matter of wallowing in morbid emotions, but of acceptance and of savoring the subtleties, the miracle of actually being alive in this moment. Yet many of us devote a great deal of energy denying our mortality. Dr. Joel Bauman. There's this sense sometimes among uh, some individuals that uh, we, we live in a death is optional culture, which is unquestionably not true. Everyone goes. Um, there, there's this sense among a lot of individuals that we will keep having, we, we have this huge armamentarium of tools to kind of kick that can. And yeah, you know, we can extend life, sometimes quite wonderfully, um, and sometimes quite not wonderfully. Sometimes the application of some of these advanced efforts, and this is my view, uh, serve more to prolong suffering rather than prolong uh, a meaningful life. Um, and that's the slippery slope of all of this. We can offer a person fifth-line chemotherapy for their um, colon cancer. 
what's the likelihood it's going to have an, a meaningful impact on prolonging their life? Single-digit percentages. Is that worth it? I don't know. kind of depends on your values. There's a very good chance that that fifth-line chemotherapy may actually shorten your life. Or at the very least, maybe three times a week trips into the oncology clinic to be getting your chemotherapy, whereby if you had chosen not to pursue it, you'd be home with your family. These are some of the values that we try to elucidate, what's important to you at this point. And to weigh. Right. What abilities are so precious to you that you can't imagine living without them? So is it your role as a caregiver to try to bring that out? Yeah. I will ask exactly that kind of question. Yeah. Are there times when you decide it's more appropriate for the chaplain to take the time to delve into this? I I think when there's deep spiritual distress around unresolved conflict, when there's a particular faith-oriented set of conflicts, which I have, which I may not have a familiarity with, on a, a, a denominational-based kind of faith concern, um, when God gets deeply involved in some of the questioning, I'll, I'm honest. That's out of my league. It really is. I need help, and that's something the chaplain is just expert at. Yeah. Doctors are not well-trained in spiritual guidance, a direction some patients would turn away from, even feel repelled by. But many patients facing their demise become naturally absorbed in contemplating the mysteries of life and its fleeting nature, in the big picture and big purpose, in what it means to be human and to transcend this life we're given. Some folks will inquire what my faith base is, Um, perhaps looking for a common framework. Maybe my doctor will understand me or take better care of me if he has the same set of beliefs or has grown grown up with a similar set of traditions. Um, I assume that's where that question kind of comes from. Um, I usually reflect it back. I don't answer it. Um, I'm curious why that's important to you. And uh, And does that evoke interesting answers sometimes? Yeah, because they'll answer that, just that, in, with some, some of what I've just shared. Um, yeah. And it actually enables me to put in the point that, well, I, by the way, you know, I, I may share or not share your same faith tradition, but the bottom line is I'm here to care for you and listen to you and make sure that this experience is going to um, be... Uh, helpful to you and, and to your family. You mentioned earlier that some days are pretty, pretty tough, which I'd be shocked if they weren't. How do you care for yourself while remaining available to care for others? I, I think a big part of it is not running away from 
the actual impact that a challenging situation has had on me. So um, sometimes we'll witness, you know, a fairly traumatic death or one in which we've had a, so such as someone who bleeds to death can be very traumatic. Uh, obviously to a family member, but certainly even to us as caregivers, you know, seeing someone bleed to death is it's terrifying. Um, that's a trauma. Uh, pain and symptoms that we have trouble controlling, specifically really bad agitation, hallucination, a person who's thinking that somebody's trying to come in and come through the window and kill themselves or their wife. Um, you know, and that severe agitation is not an uncommon terminal symptom. Okay. Deep regrets, which are overly regularly expressed, you know, I've tried to reconcile with my daughter, and she knows I'm dying, and she still won't come to visit. And holding that and not having resolution of that side of situation as a person actually fades and dies, and recognizing that, you know, this is a situation we we didn't do a very good job of fixing. Not that it was our job to fix it, but we tried. We tried to create the rec try to have that visit or to get the son out of prison for a day to visit visit Papa in, in the nursing home before he passed. Those, they kind of dig in um, emotionally. And um, if you dismiss it, it stays with you. If you share it, you have a chance of moving, moving beyond it. So that's part of the self-care to regularly and promptly, I should say, I probably should use switch the word order there, to promptly and regularly share what your experience of the work is with other folks who are willing to listen and support. And are those folks, for example, your medical or chaplain colleagues? Chaplain colleagues and social workers and the nurses I work with on a daily basis. You know, we really are a team, and that's what makes it possible. And there are personal self-care things. You know, I'm a, I, I do love to exercise. I am a regular meditator. And um, those bits of escape slash self-reflection are key to, you know, taking care of this body and mind. And I, ha I happen to know, Joel, that you literally escape on a bike. Like I did yesterday. I rode 50 miles like a fool. <laughs> you a little sore today? I'm sore today. Well, I rode 40 and then came home, and my daughter, who, of course, didn't wake up till 1230, we first went out for another 10 miles afterwards. Do you need to maintain these self-care practices on a regular or daily basis? Well, I meditate daily, but I uh, obviously don't cycle daily because my schedule just doesn't really allow it and occasionally you know illness and travel and stuff kind of gets in the way of that um, but I do notice that I feel better when I do maintain those those it's a ritual we um, benefit from rituals rituals are organizing and soothing and over time they become part of our meaning and when you say that you meditate could you describe what that is like for you I meditate in the Vipassana tradition. It's a Buddhist meditation technique which I learned probably 15 years ago, initially uh, starting with learning and following my breath and doing a variety of different meditation techniques, including body scans and um, 
occasionally a gratitude or, or loving kindness types of meditation. And how long is a typical meditation session? For I you? sit for 30 minutes every morning. And how do you feel afterward? It depends. There are times that it's miserable, and there are times that it's absolutely enlightening. And I try not to be attached to the outcome, but know that the process is what's taking care of me. Discuss what it's like when you work with the family of a patient who's died. You're the uh, 62-year-old son of a uh, 90-year-old person who's got uh, Alzheimer's and heart disease, okay? And uh, mama lives with you. She's agitated at night. You're coming home after your lengthy day of work. You have some hired help in during the day to help, but... She's banging that intercom at night, and you're not getting your sleep. She's newly incontinent, and you have to change your mother's diaper at 2 in the morning. She's angry, irritable, and think of what you're not expressing to yourself. You're feeling enormously guilty for wishing she wasn't there so that the problem would be off your shoulders. Um, and she's at times truly struggling because she's short of breath and you need to give her her morphine to make her feel better. So the sense of duty is there. That's very complex. Yeah. Very complex. You're guilty, you're angry, and you're sad all at the same time. And that's all completely normal. There's nothing wrong with you for being angry with mama. And so when you work with the family of a patient who's dying, a caregiver or other family member, do you regard helping them as part of your, your job? It, I sometimes think that the care for the caregivers is as much if not more of the responsibility of the hospice team. It's less of what I do, short of listening to what the struggles are and being able to be attentive to the caregiver's assessment of what's, wrong, what's going on with the patient. Oh, they're in pain, they're more short of breath, they're having hallucinations at night, they're having more trouble walking, there's new incontinence, and trying to come up with practical solutions for some of those issues. That's, I can do that as a doc, not always successfully, but I can try. Um, but the, a lot of the emotional and spiritual struggle, which is being held by them, that's something that the social workers, chaplains, and nurses have, a, I think, spend a lot of their time um, dealing, dealing with. The life of a hospice doc requires a constant practice of letting go, of attending to the needs of patients compassionately and professionally, knowing full well they will shortly depart into wherever we go at the end of life. I let myself love them all a little bit. So they sneak in, and some of them sneak in more than I might perhaps care to let them sneak in. They just get in there, and um, you're you're pointing to your heart. To my heart, yeah. They get in there, 
and I'll shed a tear, and I will shed a tear in public with my team because I need to. And um, just like I know my team can hold the patient and the family in that embrace around all that's going on, we kind of can hold each other, and that's the other thing that makes the work um, doable. Geriatrician and palliative care doctor Joel Bauman in Boston. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugarts. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, and Kathy Gray. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, the final chapter, part two, is Humankind Program number 257. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.